Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Mattis. As a young person, he endured poverty, insecurity, and a wild side that led him to be arrested 24 times. Seeing his most likely option as prison or worse, he enlisted in the United States Navy. After a fortuitous encounter with the man who would become his mentor, Michael Mattis, the juvenile delinquent, was transformed into Dr. Michael Mattis, world-class surgeon. In our discussion, Dr. Mattis and I talk about his upbringing and how the resilience he formed during those difficult years as a boy helped him become the person and professional he is today. We also talk about the obstacles he faced as an adult and how he has overcome them. Finally, he gives advice for young people who may feel hopeless or headed down the wrong path in life. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Dr. Mattis, welcome to 12 Geniuses. It's good to be here, Don. Thank you for having me. I want to start just with your your career as a surgeon. So let's start there. Well, I went to medical school at the University of Minnesota in 1978. And in 82, I graduated. And then I joined the University of Minnesota Department of Surgery for eight years, three of which were in basic science research. Finished my general surgical training there. And then I went to Toronto, the University of Toronto in 1990 to 92, where I completed cardiothoracic surgical training, but with a with a focus on general thoracic surgery, which is everything but the heart and the chest. That's called general thoracic surgery. And then I came back to the University of Minnesota in 92, and I was on faculty there until 2012, so 20 years there. And during that time, you know, a typical academic career, I was very successful, you know, became a full professor. I ran the general surgical residency training program eventually. You know, I had an endowed chair, you know, all the goodies. It was a great career, and I, I really enjoyed many facets of it. What's it like being a surgeon? Well, you know, I was actually talking about that with my son last night. And when you finally get fully trained and then you've had enough experience, you know, the procedures, in a way, it's kind of, it's so surreal because you you get so used to it that, you know, you're just doing your work, right? Most of the time, it's just your work. You know, you, you get in there and you're cutting people open and moving things around, taking stuff out. And this is what you do. You know, it's, it just becomes kind of the daily activity. But if you reflect on it momentarily about the broader picture, you know, the fact that you're in another human being's body and the responsibility that that entails both socially, you know, emotionally, and then technically, you know, it's really a big deal. So for me, I mean, but I feel like I had the right stuff to be a, a surgeon. You know, not everybody does, but you know, you need a certain kind of personality for sure. What are some of those aspects of the the personality? The ability to work hard, clear thinking, detached to a certain extent from things, maintain a very cool head, not be overly reactive. In a sense, you can train almost anybody to do some of the technical aspects of an operation. You know, you could train a monkey in a sense to do a lot of the moves that we do, but there's the conduct of the operation, which is a, which is a, in a way it's sort of a fuzzy thing, but it's, it's the ability to see the entire scope of the operation and, and then the details simultaneously and keep moving along. And not everybody has that quality. You know, it's kind of like military or Navy SEALs, you know, they enter a place and they, they do their battle. And in a sense, there's a quality of having the same abilities 
as an individual like that, you know, to keep yourself together, focus, deal with high stress, deal with problems when they arise in a, in an efficient manner. But then outside of that, you know, the, to have that level of connection and, and warmth and connection with patients is, is the other side. That's the part I enjoyed a great deal also. Were the majority of your surgeries scheduled or did you do? Most are scheduled. Mine was not a emergency kind of a practice. Yeah. A lot of cancer and, you know, challenging cases like that. And I, that's another facet that I enjoyed was the, you know, the kind of complex cancer patients and the, the relative drama of decision-making, you know, within a very complicated circumstance, you know, radiation, chemotherapy, complex tumors, the anatomy, all that, you know, I, I really, I enjoyed the complexity of that, and the challenges of it, you know? And so, you know, if you, you can kind of see in that space, you know, that you've got to have an ability to kind of uh, what is it, you know, just manage all that, you know, in a, in a way that's fluid. You mentioned stress. How did you manage stress? I had one method for stress management that was exercise. So I've always been a big exerciser, flagrantly addicted to it. And, you know, I, because of the nature of the hours running originally and lifting weights, you know, and riding a bike were my thing. And I mean, you know, this is everyday activity for me. I mean, no matter how tired, I always went to the gym. I mean, literally I could be up all night the next day and I still went to the gym, you know, so it was like that. So that was my main, my main way of contending. You mentioned the word detached or detach. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, in the world of Buddhism, in a way, everything here in this world is made up in terms of our human perceptions. We have eyes, we have five senses, we're taking in information. And this information is put together in a sort of a virtual reality simulation of the world at large. And what I'm now I'm getting kind of perhaps weird here for you, but the leaves are green. Well, they're not actually green. It's the, the photons that are reflected back in a particular wavelength of light. Sound doesn't exist, but vibrations make it appear that there's sound. So there's this construct in our heads of, of reality. And so in the Buddhist world, you know, there's nothing matters because it's all just it is, you know, in a sense, it's almost just a chemical cauldron that we're in. And we happen to be a particular collection of chemicals firing together that's creating awareness and consciousness and all this stuff. And there you go. So what? Big deal. Screw it. Nothing matters. That's the utterly detached mindset. And you can go there. I can go there because I'm aware of that, you know, and it's nice to have that. But, but I want to make a key distinction here. Full attachment is like I'm emotionally, intellectually attached to something. Detachment is a superpower. I consider this to be a general, highly valuable skill. The ability to toggle between kind of two extremes. And to me, that's kind of the land of wisdom. I can move over to this detachment side. I can push the scale over towards that when I need to. And I can be aware of and avoid the heavy attachment to things over here. And so I can kind of navigate those two depending upon the circumstances. You know? And, and what I need to do for the moment. And to me, that's a superpower to be able to do that. And I, I consider this to be true in almost any lane of our activities. As you know, season nine of 12 Geniuses is dedicated to the topic of resilience. And I wanted to ask you what your definition of resilience is. But as I understand it, it's uh, people that have a strong sense of internal locus of control, like they have agency, they have a sense of agency. And the second one, I think is a big one, the biggest one, and that is resilient people are able to frame major challenges as an opportunity for growth and learning. I've always been like that. 
I, I don't know what else to do. I mean, it's just inherent in me. I, I can't explain it. You know, nobody taught me the skills, but I just do it. So I, that to me is what resilience is. Now, underlying that, of course, there are, are a myriad of things that can contribute to that. Sleep, nutrition, exercise. Because if you're a mess, it's going to be hard to frame things as a learning and growth opportunity, you know, if you're physiologically a mess. So there's core activities that go into resilience, you know, and I wrote a paper called the Resilient Bank Account, which covers some of these things in detail. And so, you know, to me, these are kind of like bedrock things of, that foster a thriving, being your best self and allowing you to be more resilient. Yeah. They put you in a position to be resilient, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you, you alluded to some of the challenges you endured as a, as a child and as a teenager. Can you talk about some of those things and, and how they've helped you become who you are? So I grew up in, in Minneapolis and my mother, she, she was from Norway. She had two siblings and came over when they was very young and, you know, they grew up poor. So, you know, it's a hard time and hard times continued for my mother and she was a waitress throughout her life. And she was married at one point, had a child that had severe mental problems, was institutionalized. And then she got divorced from that. And that's where the name Mattis came from, the original marriage. And she had me out of wedlock. She was working at one of the restaurants in town. You know, she had an affair with the owner who was married and had three children. And I was born. And of course, I didn't find out about that till many, many years later. So I grew up with her and grandma moved in with us while my mother worked a couple of jobs as a waitress. And then grandma- It's just the three of you? Just three of us. Yeah. We live in an apartments, you know, poor cockroaches, you know, that kind of stuff. And great mom is supporting us with the waitress jobs. And, and there were no problems that I, you know, you know, as a child, you're in a cocoon, you know, until the reality of your world all of a sudden cracks open. There's a moment in time, typically for most of us when like, whoa, damn, you know, okay, there's another situation here. Uh, you know, I don't know, but this certainly was true with me. And grandma died. She, being the stoic Norwegian, she had cervical cancer and was bleeding for quite a while and then had brain mets and then she died rapidly. Nobody, she never told anybody. So all of a sudden she's gone. I'm 10. I'm in the apartment. Mom's at work all the time and I'm alone. And so, you know, that's the situation. And then one day mom came home with a retired Navy cook, Ralph. And he was great in the beginning. I mean, he had a suit on. And I thought, you know, I was so desperate for a father, but then Ralph came and mom quit working because now he was the provider and they ended, ended up getting married. And, you know, in the beginning, I wanted him to adopt me and everything. I was really deep into it, but very excited. But then one Sunday morning, I was sitting in the other room and my mother and Ralph were in the kitchen and it was about noon and, you know, a lot of smoke, they smoke like crazy. And, and all of a sudden my mother walks in and I'm doing the models and she stumbles in, in a white terry cloth robe and goes over to the record player and puts on a record in the, in the room that I'm in. And it's Marty Robbins and it's the West Texas town of El Paso, a song that is obviously forever burned into my brain. And then she stumbled over to me with her arms outstretched, the robe open naked underneath and asked me to dance with her. All right. So she was intoxicated and that's the wake up moment that I was referring to earlier. And of course, with highly traumatic events like that, it's always flummoxed me. But now that I understand much more about psychological trauma, you know, I don't remember anything else afterward. You know, it, I, I, have, I have zero recollection of what transpired after that, but I certainly remember that. And that's when the wheels came off the bus completely. And so basically for the next, well, till she died when I was 25 years old, I was 12 at the time. 
It was just a continuous pattern of relapses, getting dried out, mom is back. And when she was sober, she was a warm, wonderful, loving, kind woman and bright, you know, cooking dinners, you know, and, and, and doing all that. But, you know, she's married to a guy who's fundamentally, you know, a moron. He's a lout. He's, he's an alcoholic drinking all the time. He's, he's mean, you know, emotionally mean, you know, it's just my poor mother had to, you know, I think she compromised herself in the name of economic security and loneliness. These are suppositions of mine, but it certainly makes sense given the nature of the beast. And so all the time too, all the time. Yeah. I'm assuming this is the sixties or yeah, yeah. Maybe even earlier. Yeah, no, that's right. Very, so, very difficult very time different. to My be. My mother, 1954, child out of wedlock alone. I mean, you can just picture as a woman in that age and the pressure and the shame about that and all this stuff. You know, the disadvantages, the disadvantages are, are very, very overwhelming. Long. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't until I ended up in Hazelden myself that I really fully could see her as a human being that she was. Because, you know, the, the, the situation was so painful as a kid, you know, I'd, I'd come home and I'd, I could tell. Hazelden, for people who don't know, is a drug and alcohol treatment facility here in, in Minnesota, pretty well known around the country, certainly, and even around the world. Yeah. And now it's Betty Ford, you know, Hazelden. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. This is 2012. You, you went to treatment yourself? I went yourself. there. Yeah. Yeah. And, but with her, you know, it was, you know, every three to four or five months, you know, life is good. And then, you know, all of a sudden I'd come home and she's been drinking again. And I could, you know, I could tell on the way home, I, I don't know how that is, but I could feel could it in feel my gut. It I could feel it in my guts without having seen without it. Without having seen it. It wow. was just crazy. So that's the way it was. You know, one day I came home and she's, you know, in the dark, one little light on in the corner in her panties and she's cutting her wrists and there's blood everywhere. And then he comes in and he starts beating me because I'm, you know, losing it, you know, so it was that kind of a situation. And so I didn't like to be around home, obviously. It was a hellhole. And so I ended up on the streets a lot. My friends became, you know, my family, literally. And I was in and out of trouble, arrested 24 times, in and out of reform school five times. And, and then to avoid, you know, going to prison, I dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. And, and you know, that was interesting. I mean, you know, the whole, the whole thing with Ralph was, you know, and my mom, you go in there and you can, they'll teach you a, a skill. And you'll have a job for the rest of your life. That was the mindset. You get a job. You can... So I ended up chipping paint and cleaning latrines in the Navy. And, you know, I, I hated that and continued to get in trouble in the Navy because, of course, these things just don't go away overnight. But, you know, one night I was sitting on the back of the aircraft carrier. We were out at sea. I was smoking a joint. Everybody's on drugs at times during the Vietnam War. And I realized, you know, look, I either I got to go to school or I'm going to end up in prison because I keep screwing up. Or I'm going to end up like Ralph, you know, for my life. And I okay, I'm going to school. I just made a decision. That was it. That was as simple as that because I saw no other path forward, you know. And so I got out and got my GED. You know, it's, of course, this is a long road. <laughs> Believe me, I couldn't add fractions. I didn't know how to write. You know, I mean, it was, it was really bad. So you, even though you went to school oh, up until you... I was nothing. I, I went, I, I, had, I was in the work study program. So you go to school in the, in the morning for an hour okay, or two okay. and do your BS and then you know, go out and work around. So, so you had no sense of the potential you had? None. Did anybody? Did it, any of your teachers or? Yes, one or two, they, they could kind of see it. But, you know, the, I, I, was, I was a challenge. Mm. 
I was very- Just a behavioral ener- challenge. Yeah, energetic, really. I mean, I've always been highly energetic. But what were some of the things that you were getting into when, when you were on the streets with your friends? Well, breaking into houses, stealing cars was a big one. You know, a lot of the car thefts. Many, D- many, Just for many. joy rides? Or yeah, what? I was driving around for a few days and then go get another one. So this is just Kenwood. mischief. You, this is just mischief. This is not, there's no economic no, benefit. We, we were not economically inclined in terms of our thievery. No, it was all for joy, you know, and just screwing around. And escape. And escape, yeah. The thrills to escape the misery of our existence. Yeah, and you know, these other kids, their homes weren't as bad as mine, but they were pretty screwed up too. And then I got my GED and... I went to then junior college and, you know, I got into the university then after that. But the thing is, you know, just in terms of my energy, uh, while I was going to school at the junior college, I also worked full-time at the IDS center, which is a big skyscraper in Minneapolis. And I, I would vacuum carpets from 5.30 to 1.30 in the morning, take the bus home, you know, and then do it all over the next day. But, you know, I I was saving money to buy a car with that job and my GI bill. And then I got the car and that that day, I thought, well, we'll go out and party. And I went downtown to a very famous hard bar, hard edge bar down, downtown Minneapolis called Moby Dick's. And I went there, which is where we used to go. And I got hammered and drove the car in a high-speed chase down the big street in Minneapolis with the cops chasing me at 60 miles an hour. And I ran into a cement pole and ended up in the hospital, a liver trauma, and had a operation for all that. And I got out a week 10 days later, and I was it. I was done with the whole nine yards. I quit drinking heavy. You know, I never got drunk again. I honestly, I don't think I've ever been drunk again since that time. And, you know, I just stopped everything and I became hyper, hyper focused and driven. And I, then I got into the U and I eventually clawed my way, you know, through that and started to get better. But the real turning point for me in terms of my trajectory was meeting Stacy Roback, who was a pediatric surgeon in the Twin Cities here. And I got a job at a furniture store locally here, a very high-end furniture store called Thomas Designs. And and I was a delivery guy for Thomas Designs. And, you know, they made a lot of custom furniture and stuff. It was a big job that Stacy had them hired for. So I was doing, I was out at his house a lot and he was just this incredible man. And he took me kind of under his wing and, and he, you know, gave me a place to be and talk and nothing particular. I could just go over his house and hang out, you know, and he saw something in me. And what did he see in you? I don't know. I mean, he never talked about not, he's not, he wasn't the guy to sit around and talk about this kind of stuff. He just, he'd kind of hang out with him and he'd make some suggestions and, and stuff, but it was very low key, just kind of, we're good here. You're safe here, you know? And and he suggested I take some vocational interest tests because I couldn't figure out what I was going to do. I was, I'd got, I'd knocked off a couple of years of school my GPA was around 2.5, but I was like, what am I going to do? You know? And I took the vocational interest test, a whole battery of tests. That's the other thing about me. And I want to emphasize this. I'm always willing to try stuff. You know, I'm, I'm very open-minded about new things, you know, and to some extent, I'm a little bit of a, too much of an early adopter in some ways, but, but I'm, I'm open-minded and I like trying things. And so when he suggests that, go over and take these tests, I'm like, sure. Anyway, so he suggests I take the vocational interest tests and and it said, be a doctor. I mean, the dot on the graph was way up here. And then really? next, yeah, next down was physical therapist. And then below that was everything else. And to me at the time, this was ridiculous because I didn't have any even vague sense that I was smart enough to become a physician. So that was ludicrous. The next one was down was physical therapist. And that was, what the hell's that? You know, I didn't even know what that was. And 
So I went to the college counselor and talked to her about it. And she suggested I go over to the Children's Rehab Center and do some volunteer work and see what that's like because physical therapists work over there and they do stuff with kids. Is this at the University yeah, of Minnesota? Yeah, the University of Minnesota. The volunteer thing, though, when I went up there, you know, I was still dressing like a young juvenile dork, you know, that I was. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, I mean, it's so embarrassing when I think about it. Totally, totally early 70s, you know, kind of look, bell bottoms and all that. And, but I was assigned to this young boy, probably about 13, 14 years old. And he had very severe cerebral palsy and I'll never forget him. And I, at first I was horrified. Like I can't be seen here. You know, this is a nightmare. And I was assigned to feed him lunch, you know? And so here's this kid, he's very twisted up and, you know, he, he can, he can't really talk, you know, because of the slurred speech, but he's bright as hell. And I didn't know anything about this stuff. You know, I mean, I'm completely clueless. So, you know, I'm sitting there with a spoon pushing the the mush in his mouth and he squirts out and I'm, you know, basically I'm just sitting there kind of keep feeding him. But I became very attached to him over time when I saw what the kid had inside. And that cracked open a quality of caring and connection to me that I, I didn't really fully understand existed. And so between that and then the science courses, I decided one day I was sitting in the bus stop since I didn't have a car, since I totaled that car. And I just made that decision right there. I'm just going to go to medical school, screw it medical school. And then I just, I really went all in. I mean, basically 24 seven. So drive is your superpower. Yeah. It, it is one of my big ones and I just keep doing it. Make sure it's channeled in the right direction. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I well, mean, cause I was the only one stealing all those cars. You know, my friends weren't, I would be the one constantly doing stuff, you know, and that, that was, that was, that was very unique that way. They would not do it occasionally, but you know, I, I would, I would have to go steal the cars, you know, and come up and pick him up and stuff. And I was the instigator. Okay. What do you think provoked you to change paths when you're, I'm assuming some of your peers didn't. And well, like I said, the Navy, I mean, I just saw the future before me. It wasn't good. Prison, crappy job, rest of my life. But why didn't those other kids? I'm assuming that they didn't, they're, they're not doctors. Well, frankly, some of them aren't that bright. They weren't that motivated, lazier far lazier than I am, you know, but I don't know, you know, it's a combination of things, you know, I, I happen to be bright and this is not hubris. I mean, I just got lucky, but you didn't know you were, I had no idea. Isn't I that, I was isn't one of that the, interesting? Yeah. I, and everyone in high school and all that, they just said I was a moron, you know, I think there's a lot of young people running around like with that kind yes, of, uh, yeah, without uh, a doubt. And some know, of them that. have been on this show. Mm -hmm. So the ones who have made it, yeah. I can think of a few who talked about upbringings, just like you lived, I lived. You have no idea of your not potential. Not knowing, yes. Yeah. And, I, and I think mentorship is a really critical aspect. That's where Stacy rescued me. He rescued me. And as did others. I mean, I had help all along the way. I couldn't have done it without these folks, for sure. And that's a ludicrous sort of thing about pulling yourself up by the bootstrap. Certainly, I worked hard. And I made the efforts and I made the efforts to connect with these folks and stuff. But, you know, without that lift and that helping hand and the support, I just don't know how I would have done it. Yeah. Interestingly, I've been a mentor now for 30 years. I started mentoring at Hennepin County Juvenile really? Detention Center. Yes. A young man named Teddy. And I never asked him what he did. He said, you know, I did something bad. I said, probably. So he actually was tried as an adult. Uh, and then he was kind of waiting until he turned 18. And then he went to St. Cloud when he, he served for eight years. That St. Cloud Penitentiary here. Yes. 
Yes. So, but I could see in him, we, we loved each other. So he's African-American, grew up in Kansas City, total, total gangster. and was really, really proud of it. But we had something, we had a bond. He loved me and I loved him. In fact, when he got out eight years later, I went down to Kansas City and we saw each other. We spent the day together and walked into his, it was one of those neighborhoods where Kansas City is very segregated. And it was one of those neighborhoods where I got out of the car and people just stopped to watch me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are you doing here? Yeah, what are, yeah. You, what are you doing here? I went into his house and he just, he was just a chiseled, chiseled, chiseled man, probably 240 pounds. He just grabbed me, lifted me up, hugged me. We'd never touched. Because you were in prison. Yeah, we, in prison. Could, we yeah. couldn't touch. Yeah. And I get to meet his mom. And, but the reason why I think I continued mentoring is I saw this connection and I, and I saw what he could have done and been had he had somebody who believed in him. That's early. right. That's right. That's all it takes. And he, he wanted to do good things with me yeah. because of me. No, that's right. He, he really right. did. He's highly he, motivated. He, he just didn't know how. He didn't have the tools or the direction or anything. And by the time we met. I want to share a vignette that I think is really important here. When I, after I got out of the Navy, I was, so before I had the job vacuuming carpets, I was looking for, I was going to get a skill that I could make some money so I could go to school. I mean, I, I basically was thrashing around. And so I enrolled in this call, I think it was called Twin Cities Education, some TCOIC or something. I can't remember. But anyways, a place where you could learn how to weld and do a couple of other skills like that. So I'm over there in North Minneapolis, which is kind of an edgy area. And I'm learning how to weld. And it was ridiculous. I mean, the setup was ridiculous. Same with, it wasn't really a good curriculum. I mean, this is an old guy there. He'd show you how to weld. And, you know, and, and I, I knew it was not going to work. And I, I couldn't stand welding anyway. I hated that kind of But. I was applying for my GED during that time. And I had back then, you know, there's no internet, right? So I had to write a letter to whatever the GED office is, right? And so that's like probably the first letter I've ever written in my life. And so the lady that was there was one of the, you know, I don't know what her role was, but she was, you know, at the desk in the school. And I wrote the letter and I showed it to her because she was going to help me, you know, get it sent off to the right place and all that stuff. And she's sitting there at the desk and she's reading it. And she looked over at me and she said, gosh, you know, you can really write well. All right. Now that was the first time that I have a recollection of anyone saying anything positive about any skill that I had. And I remember that moment is burned into my brain, like forever, you know, that then I took that baby and ran with it. I mean, I, it was, it was a shot of belief in myself a little bit that lasted with me forever. So just the, the power of those small moments of things that we say you know, to individuals, it's really remarkable. And I've, I've tried my best to channel that skill into, you know, kind of wherever I go, if you can pay attention and notice something positive about somebody and then make a note of it. It's authentic. And it's really quite a, a bridge builder with other people, you know, to do that. That is very powerful. And she probably never gave you a second thought after that. No, it was just, she just happened to comment. But she know. changed your life yeah. or the way you viewed yourself and your abilities. It was capabilities. profound. Yes. Profound. I mean, it really. I, That's what recognition does. Yeah, it really it's, does. It's a true gift. It is a true gift. And, and oftentimes, you know, you benefit by giving recognition. Oh, it feels I, wonderful. I, I find that 
when I when I recognize somebody for something they've done. And, it's you know, wonderful. That's builds, gratitude. It, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's remarkable. You talked a little bit about how your childhood prepared you to be a surgeon by risk taking. Are there any other benefits from your from your youth that you carried forward as a surgeon? Well, tolerance of uncertainty is a huge and you know, some people don't tolerate uncertainty very well. I'm I'm fine with it. You never knew what what was going to be on the other side of the door when yeah. you walked home after Anywhere, school. Anytime, any place. It was constant uncertainty. Relentless. And the ability to adapt and adapt whatever comes along, you know. Not that's, easy. That's, that's big. That's yeah. important. It may not, it may sound easy just giving it those, oh, ability to adapt, you know, but I mean, doesn't tell the truth of the hell of the process of adapting and the emotional challenges you got to go through to get through it, you know, to get on the other side of it, you know. I've listened to, you know, other media that you've been on, run a, a PBS show a number of years ago, and there was a point at which I think you described your you were hopeless. And I think there are a lot of people, young people who are hopeless and concerned parents or teachers. So what, what advice do you have for those people? Um, I basically tell them, look, fuck everybody. Fuck everybody that thinks you can't do something. Believe in yourself and start doing something. Take action in a positive way for whatever it is, but care about yourself and do something is going to matter to you in the hell with what everybody's saying. Ignore the noise and the comments and the criticisms and, and just get after it. I mean, it, because the path out of that is constructive activity. You know, you've got to do some things that give you a sense of agency and, and that you, you can surmount this, you know, sitting still and feeling hopeless, as horrible as that is, and I've been there, you know, you've got to identify the feelings, live with them, recognize them, but then you got, you know, Rich Roll says mood follows action, and he's absolutely right, you know, and I don't believe action is appropriate for every dang circumstance in life, again, that toggling thing, but it is clearly... You know, there's a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, and it's very well known. It's probably one of the more powerful therapies, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and the like, but this is basically acceptance of your feelings and then commitment to pursuing your values and what you want to do despite the feelings. So you do it with the feelings, you know, of hopelessness or sadness or anxiety and all that stuff. And I don't know any other way. I really don't, you know? You know, find, look for people that might support you, like I did with Stacy Roback. You got to get a, a tribe, a small tribe, where some one or two people care about you, you know. So somebody shows that interest, glom onto it, you know, and take it and run with it. We talked about this a little bit. What's a resilience bank account? Well, it's that undercurrent of maintaining your physical and mental health so that you're your best self. I, I really like the idea of best self versus not being good. And, you know, there's an idea of, of a line, you know, are you above the line or are you below the line? Above the line, you're best self, which means curious, open-minded, compassionate, warm, you know, all those adjectives that describe being your best self. Below the, self, below the line, you're not good, you're anxious, constricted, 
critical, blah, blah, blah. And so the resilience bank account is intended to lift you above the line as much as possible. Because if you, you do need exercise, crucial, uh, you need good sleep, your nutrition, you need to treat yourself with kindness, you know, so the resilience bank account is a set of habits that, you know, one can use to optimize their chances of being in the best self land. And so these are these six habits, sleep, exercise, meditation, gratitude, self-compassion, and connection. Mm -hmm. And so when you're practicing these things, you're more likely to be your best self. You're, you're more likely to be resilient. For sure. And there's a bank account component of it, meaning continue to do these things. You could take some time off because you've made these deposits, but you can't take out, off too much time, right? And it builds over time. The more you do it, you know, the more it's, it's a slope, you know, the curve. In the beginning, it may not seem like much. This is one of the challenges. It's one thing to exercise, you know, the, the, the feel is immediate, right? You know, you go out and run or you lift weights and you come home and you feel good. I did that. You know, physiologically, you feel good. Meditation can be kind of a challenge because as an, as a different example, because you're sitting there and you may lose track of your breath and you keep thinking about stuff and it feels like this, this sucks, you know? And, and so the, the reward is not so immediately evident in, in that. And so you've got to have a lot of patience to stick with it, to reap the benefit of it over time. But I, I think it, almost anyone would agree that individuals are wildly unique in, in their personalities and their way they see the world. And it persists throughout time. I mean, you, you look at postures of me and when I was a kid, I mean, the postures, I mean, it's identical, the, the attitudinal things, you know, just the, the whole thing is just persisted, you know? And it makes me wonder really what role I had in anything, if anything, it's just kind of the way it is. But if you can tap into that unique wiring, the things that make you, you, and develop that thoroughly, that leads to a state of fulfillment. And because you're doing things that are natural to you, that bring you a sense of joy, fulfillment, you're, you're paying attention to your natural tendencies instead of always trying to fix what's wrong with you. And that's the problem. We're trying to fix everything. And in, I think instead we should be fostering our natural talents to put to use in the world for benefit in the world. And that's how you help somebody grow, you know, by seeing them as a unique individual that they are. And certainly, you know, I was of the ilk because of where I came from that, you know, the protocol is you go to high school, then you go to college, and then you figure out your career, you go get your PhD or whatever, and then you go work, you know. That's where I was at one point. Having been through everything I've been through, I've changed my mind and I see it a different way. And I certainly, with my children, boy, do I see them in a different light now because they're, I, you know, it's, it's shocking to, I think any parent can relate to this. It's like, kind of like, did you, did you really come from me? You know, I mean, you are so different, you know, like there's no parallel here, you know, and instead of wanting it to be otherwise, if you can see them for the unique individual that they are in their talents and help them grow that, that's where the action is to me. If you want to call it success, I call it fulfillment because you're paying attention to your natural tendencies and fostering those. And I've, I've played that out in my own life, not intentionally because I didn't know, but now I do know, and I have a better understanding of the kind of the mechanisms of that. Yeah. Do you have a, a purpose? Yeah. What is it? I 
love helping people see their potential. That's it. Me too. Yeah. I mean, that drives me. Having mentored now for 30 years, I created this model of mentorship. I came up with this probably three years ago. I was on this call with a guy who was a very successful football player. He played division one football. He was supposed to play in the NFL, but he experienced this career ending injury. And he was talking about access, access, access. We have to help people get access to different opportunities and things of that nature. Yeah. Cause you don't know what you don't know. Well, yes. And, and that factors in. And so I was thinking about that as, is that the key to helping people, unlocking people's potential? And that is a component, but I don't think, I don't think it's the key. And so I, I developed this model and I wonder if you agree with it, but the first is build awareness and help people understand what this world can potentially offer them and then build abilities within those people. So then they can start to, once they start to understand where they could possibly go, okay, give them some skills for how to get there. Then you open your network. You're a connected guy. I'm a pretty connected guy. So I can open up my network, make it some introductions. And it it's evolves in those stages, awareness, ability, and then access. And throughout those three stages, advice. So it's four A's. And you're always providing advice, little feedback here. Great job. Recognize, recognizing them. You can do this, you know, and, and that's, that's what I have seemed to work really well you know, for myself as a mentor. Well, I love that. And it parallels my experience completely because when I got the job at the furniture store, you know, suddenly I was in an environment where there's very expensive Italian furniture and people that are really well-dressed. You know, they all live in Kenwood, the area, you know, the nice area in Minneapolis here, the neighborhood. And, and you know, I just hadn't been exposed on a daily basis to that sort of thing. And it opened my eyes, as you said, the awareness to, well, there's a whole nother world here. You know, that was really a big deal for me. It was a big deal. And then, you know, meeting Stacy and, you know, the advice, he just gave me some advice here and there and, you know, supported me. It parallels exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And that was just fortuitous, you know. You talked about 2012 and, and some challenges you had then and I'm assuming that it kind of coincided with this transition from being a surgeon to not yeah. being a surgeon. So I was very burned out. That's one, that's one piece of the puzzle. So I was really getting to be quite miserable with my job and, you know, I'm 50, 55, something like that. I don't know. So I started having really bad back pain and ridiculous pain down my leg from bad back problems. And I ended up getting five level lumbar fusion, which is a big spine operation. And, you know, got back from that and got back to work, of course, you know, nothing stopped me. And, uh, but then I realized that I had bone on bone hips. And so I was in a lot of pain again. And then, you know, I got hooked up with a pain guy at the U who was, you know, a friend and a colleague and never had to go to clinic. And he just, you know, I got injections in the hip and that didn't help. And so I got my first prescription for 360 narcotic tablets, you know, and this is back before the opioid crisis, you know. And so, you know, this didn't have to go to clinic, kind of a friend, you know, giving me narcotics. So I had free access to, you know, whatever I wanted. And, and I thought that I could control it, you know, but I was wrong. And so 18 months later, you know, I had to go to Hazelin. And, and uh, we can state that 
but the living hell of that entire experience can't be conveyed in a brief conversation like that. I mean, it's really staggering. Overnight, you know, I went from full professor, endowed chair, blah, 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 to, you know, just another miserable drug addict in rehab, right? You know, and, and so, but on the other hand, sitting on this perch now, there's nothing more clarifying than getting your ass handed to you and becoming a nobody, you know, because I didn't even know who I was. What I was, was a surgeon that defined every piece of my existence. And I remember when we were contacted, cause I didn't know if I could go back to work, you know, after getting out of there, I mean, my hips, I still need one hip replaced. And I mean, I was a mess. I was just a mess. And I, my wife didn't want me to go back to work. And, and I mean, it was so scary. You know, how can I give, how can I possibly give that up after everything I put in? Classic sunk cost argument, you know, and, but I, I did. And I, I, I just said, I, I did, I truly, everything in my being didn't want to go back to work. I didn't want any part of it. So I quit and became a house husband. And like I said, horrifyingly difficult to unwind that. And I remember standing on the porch with my wife when we were talking about this and I, I was afraid, you know, if I quit, the, my biggest fear was that, you know, my wife and children wouldn't love me anymore. You know, I was seriously worried about that. So your identity was so wrapped so, up in being a surgeon. Yeah. And they only knew me as this very, you know, high profile, you know, charging surgeon. And, you know, they hadn't seen me, you know, in another venue, you know. And so all of a sudden, you know, the, the man is no longer the man. Imagine being an athlete. Yeah. And having a five-year career or eight-year career, you're 32 years old. And, and they're young. Yes. And now what? You are making millions and now you're going to do so that. You got to be able I, to handle I, becoming a nobody. For months and months prior to us selling our company in 2016, I thought about my identity. I walked through the door. I was president of this company. I owned, you know, a third of it and, and people all around the country knew who I was. I was speaking at these big conferences. I'm sure you were doing the same thing. I, I loved being that person. Yeah, it's There was a lot of social yeah. equity yeah. in that. For months, I knew we were selling the company for months. I was thinking about it. What's my identity going to be? What's my identity going to be? The day we sell the company, I become a father for the first time. Immediately. Overnight. I shifted. I shifted my identity toward being a father and I was like, this is it. And it's far more healthy, right? And now I could care less, you know, about, about any of those other things. And it sounds like that's what you did too. Maybe a little less willingly than I did, but. Well, no, I mean, I became a house husband for two years. And I mean, I really got dedicated to being a father like you did. And I mean, I was driving my daughter to school every day, picking her up, making banana bread. I mean, you know, I mean, I really got into it. I loved it. And my daughter saved me emotionally, you know, because she cared. She was 10. She wasn't mad at me. You know, everybody else is not happy appropriately, uh, you know, but she was my emotional savior at the time, you know, and I, we've got a tremendous bond because of it. But I wouldn't trade that for anything, you know, that experience of being a, a, a father, because prior to that, I was just always working, you know, and I didn't really know my kids, you know. Where can people learn more about you? My website, www.michaelmattis.com. This has been phenomenal, Dr. Great. Mattis. I really appreciate your time. Thank yeah, you for I've enjoyed it. Thank you for being here and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. This was the final episode of Season 9. 
Over the course of the season, we had 12 incredible guests who shared their secrets to living resilient lives. We'll be back with season 10 this summer when I interview 12 futurists about how life is going to transform for humanity between now and the year 2073. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.